In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is How Do We Know Ourselves by David G. Myers. How Do We Know Ourselves? Curiosities and Marvels of the Human Mind. And uh, Dr. Myers has studied these topics related to identity and how we know ourselves for decades. And so this book um, he recently released. Looking forward to reading it with reading and sharing with you uh, on next, the next show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Psych by Paul Bloom. Psych: The Story of the Human Mind. And Uh, Paul Bloom, I've read a few of his books, Against Empathy and The Sweet Spot, both of which I really enjoyed, and I enjoyed this book very much, and I highly recommend it. It essentially reads, and he discusses this in the introduction himself, like a psychology textbook, but it's written in a way that's not in the traditional textbook style, which makes it much uh, easier to read and to get through. That being said, of course... uh, it's going to be quite longer if it's a textbook-style book, closer to 400 pages, but it does a really good job of touching on uh, a whole variety of psychology topics from even consciousness and the human mind to language and language development, child development, and even gets into some interesting topics like um, race and racism as far as how we process those things our social lives and even um, mental health issues and mental health treatments and ending with looking at what is a good life or what makes us happy. So it's it's a wonderful book to really give you a great overview of psychology. And for me, it was quite interesting to read it because many things were very much the same, even from things I remembered learning in undergraduates for my bachelor degree at UCLA, there's a lot of things that were still the same and even presented in similar ways or the examples were the same. There's one example that really any psychology student uh, and any of those psychology book that you read that's introduction to psychology includes the name Phineas Gage, who really in some ways was very unlucky, but some ways you can consider him lucky that he survived what happened to him back in September of 1848, he was working um, on roads and railway tracks, and he used to do something where he had to basically fill these holes and put a metal rod inside, and one time he made a mistake, and due to an explosion, a metal rod went through his head, basically went through his eye and, and up his head and out the other way, and you would think, of course, he would instantly die, but what makes him miraculous and remembered over 170 
167 years later, is that he survived. And that's quite miraculous that someone would survive a metal rod exploding going through their head. Now, just because he survived doesn't mean that he came out of it completely okay. He was able to function in a lot of ways, but he just no longer could make good decisions or really make decisions. Um, as was explained by his doctor, Gage was no longer Gage. He was fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity, manifesting but little deference for his fellows. And so what appeared to be happening there was that he lost parts of the frontal lobe, the front part of the brain, which we see is related to things like decision-making, also related to our inhibitions and how we treat others and our character. And so this part of the brain was essentially lost or parts of it were lost. And so we saw that although he survived, he was in some ways no longer himself at the same time, which also brings up these types of thoughts and issues about what makes someone who they are, even if you're alive, but if you're not fully functioning or parts of you go away, what makes you you? But so he does introduce this early in the book, and as I mentioned, uh, almost any psychology textbook you read will include um, the story of Phineas Gage, a very well-known figure in the study of psychology or when we're studying psychology. There's other parts that I, I remembered, I guess that's a pun there because it was related to memory, things like if you were given a list of things to remember. So if I say I'm going to say 12 words or 20 words in a row, and then I'm going to see how many of them you remember. So I just list the 20 words with, let's say, a few seconds in between. And then I ask you to tell me which words you remember. What we tend to see are the words that you remember. There's something called primacy effects and recency effects. So... Uh, primacy effects are that because of the earlier words, you probably rehearsed them. So let's say I said dog, spider, book. In your head, you might be saying dog, spider, book. But you can only do this for so many words. So then you would start trying to remember the other ones. But because you practice those few words, they might have gone into a, a not completely long-term memory, but stored a bit more than the other words. But then what we also see is a recency effect. The most recent words, the ones that end, they might stay in your short-term memory as well, so you're likely to remember those words. So what was interesting for me is that sometimes I could predict what stories he might share because they were still similar to um, things I'd read in textbooks many years ago and courses that I took in undergraduate. And so it, it was a reminder of many things do stay the same or um, advances are made, but some of the basic principles remain. But there was a lot of new research, or it was nice to see presented new research or updated research on topics I had studied, topics that weren't so prevalent even when I studied in undergraduate um, studying psychology, and things related to morality, as I mentioned, even things related to racism and the assumptions that we make. Uh, that was quite powerful. So again, highly recommended if you have any interest in psychology, some of it might be review for you as it was for me, but I'm sure some of it will be new for you as it was for me as well. Um, one interesting factor I, I mentioned, racism. So often the research that looks at racism, there's many different things that we see, some related to babies and seeing which faces they prefer, 
that's one line of research. But a big one that you maybe have heard of is related to the theme of uh, implicit bias. And so implicit bias is implicit means that you it's less it's more hidden as opposed to explicit. So explicit bias would be, let's say, if I said I don't like certain types of people and I'm aware of it, that's explicit bias. But what this field of research is looking at is that could there be biases, prejudices that you hold that you don't realize you hold that are more unconscious or implicit? And you maybe have heard of the implicit association test, which essentially has you try to um, react to certain things like, let's say, a young face with positive words and old faces with negative words and vice versa. And based on how quickly you respond or how many mistakes you make, we get a sense of how easily you associate certain things. So, for example, most people associate young with good and old with bad. Even people who are older seem to hold this bias. So there's been a lot of research looking at implicit bias and trying to understand are people, you know, the whole chapter is actually, is everyone a little bit racist, which is a song from a musical, but he steals that line for the title of that chapter. And what I like is that he presents information, and he does in this chapter as well, in a balanced way uh, and points to the fact that often what grabs attention and grabs headlines and goes viral are statements, articles, videos, where people make claims that seem very uh, extreme uh, and extreme in the sense that they try to be so clear and comprehensive or think that they have the whole answer, but aren't really reflecting the whole truth. So it'll say, for example, men are this way and women are this way. And there might be some evidence suggesting something in that direction, but the way it's presented, and often people just read the headlines, makes it seem like it's some really stark black and white type of thing. And so we see that with these, the, the research done with implicit association tests, that there does seem to be something there, but at times it might have been blown out of proportion. It doesn't mean that people don't hold on to these beliefs implicitly. It seems like they actually do. But how much does that reflect actual behavior and things of that sort is, is unclear. So, um, you know, the research there is really important and interesting, but there is uh, caveats to the research, and we always want to take that into account. And something that I myself try to notice from myself, but I know I can't always do it, is that we sometimes want the science or want things to fit what we think is already right, what we think is morally the correct thing, and we're hoping that the research confirms that. And related to that, I'll, I'll um, share some thoughts on a whole chapter he had, but recently there was something in the more academic news of a researcher at Harvard, a psychologist, who had fabricated some data and um, it came to light or is coming to light. It's still unclear exactly what happened, but that she might have fabricated data and, and altered some data to get certain results, but that she was making up. And he does mention that there's things related to that, but also issues related to psychology studies where we don't always find that the results have held the test of time, or really to put it another way, when we try to replicate some of the classic studies or older studies in psychology, people are unable to replicate the same results, which brings the question if the original findings have validity. 
And so he has a whole chapter, it's called A Brief Note on a Crisis, related to this. And I think he does present that quite well also, that uh, this is an issue in psychology research. But as he says, yes, there are these concerns, um, but we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and think, well, that means that all psychology research is useless or pointless or that it hasn't told us anything and can't continue to tell us anything. Psychology research actually is in some ways quite new. Scientific research really only a couple centuries old, but when it comes to psychology research, it's even more new, and there, of course, will be um, mistakes made or uh, realizations that our methodology is not quite sound, or we think we're, we're showing something, but we might not be. doesn't mean that it's something we can throw out completely. It just means that we have to learn from it. Science is self-correcting in that way or should be, and so psychology research is the same, that it needs to continue to correct itself to um, get through these bumps and find its way more clearly. So I think psychology research has a lot of challenges ahead of itself. It already has had many. Um, one that I always find when you look at research on psychology is if we try to study something like happiness or depression, we often are trying to quantify these things that are very abstract and very much subjective, and that itself can be a challenge. So that quantification will always be a challenge. Um, but again, this is one of many things that psychology research is facing and has to get better at. But I fully agree with the author, Paul Bloom, that there's much that psychology research has already taught us and can and will continue to teach us about ourselves and understanding ourselves and importantly, making our lives and the lives of others better. Near the end of the book, there was a chapter on mental illness and, as I mentioned, treatments and uh, he, you know, it's a short chapter in the sense of, if we're talking about all of psychopathology, that's a very lengthy discussion. He also gets into some of the philosophical debates of, is mental illness even a real thing? Some people argue that it isn't. Is it all on a spectrum? Um, are the diagnoses that we have, these labels, meaningful? And these are really difficult questions that I think he doesn't have a conclusion on them because it's nothing that we can conclude completely. But definitely, we see that people are suffering. That, to me, is always important when we're trying to understand mental illness. Definitely, people suffer in different ways that we want to try to alleviate that therapy and near uh, that, I uh, got ahead of myself there, alleviate that suffering. And he does talk about different types of, of treatment. And he shares that, to begin with, when we look at something like medication and the, the realm of psychiatry, we were often optimistic, and I've talked about this on the show, several books that have discussed this, that there was a thought, this thought that with new brain scanning and new um, advances in pharmacology, that we were going to figure out what all the illnesses were and treat them very soon, within a decade or two of you know the 80s, and clearly we're not there, not even close. Even some people are very pessimistic and would say in, in the last few decades, we haven't really seen any significant advances or new medications that are um, really helping people in a great, in a great way. So um, it's unfortunate that psychiatry also, just like psychology overall, is in some ways an early stage. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done to advance it. But again, it doesn't mean it's not helpful and that millions of lives have not been helped by medications. It's very easy to get into these uh, black and whites and binary type of discussions. Is psychiatry good or bad? Should we get rid of it completely? 
and I think we would be mistaken to not see the good of it, but also mistaken not to recognize that there are lots of areas where we need to be humble in seeing that we aren't quite aware of what we're doing and how we're doing it, and we want to advance carefully not to hurt people while we're trying to help them. Um, he also talks about therapy itself, talk therapy, which for me was, of course, quite interesting since I do it myself. And he did share how there's different types of therapy, but what we do see seem to find is that the type of therapy, the techniques might not be as important as what uh, is often we call the relationship, or as he puts it, the therapeutic alliance that is formed between the therapist and the client. This often seems to be the most healing aspect of uh, therapy, what helps the client get better. And so, uh, as he shares, this is a, a sort of vague or ambiguous type of a uh, factor. And as a therapist, I've talked to many of my colleagues this experience that we have where therapy is much more what we consider a process type of a experience, meaning that it's not that you do X and Y and then the person gets better from X and Y directly. It's more the whole process of therapy that over time can lead to healing, which can be really fascinating and interesting, but also uh, difficult for both client and therapist to really know what exactly is going on. So here again, we see that it's not clear what is happening, but we do see lots of research that shows that he talks about that therapy does help people, even if we're not exactly sure why, but that one of the things that is very clear is that it's a therapeutic alliance, this relationship between the therapist and client that can be very healing and makes the difference in who gets better or how much they get better. Uh, the last section of the book, he gets into living a good life. And so he shares about positive psychology and also looking at research on happiness. And that's also an interesting chapter because it's a newer field, but the insights are things that people care a lot about. Maybe it's something that people care the most about. We definitely care about illnesses and how we might suffer. That's very important. And of course, it's related to living a good life. But we also care so much about well, what makes us happy. What should we be doing to try to live a good life? And then also, as a society, as a, globally, how can we create situations or the context and environment where people can live happier lives? Um, and, and I think this is, for me, an area of research that it's so complicated, again, going back to what I was mentioning before, of how do we quantify and make sense of these things? Because it's so important, how do we define happiness? Some studies on happiness ask people, how do they feel at different times throughout the day? And then based on that, we'll make conclusions that, okay, these are the types of activities that make people happy um, or lead to happiness. And that makes sense. It has some value. But I think if we're looking at how to live a life, he himself, Paul Bloom, shares that things like meaning are very important. And of course, there's research looking at that as well. But I think we can often get misled by this research if we're not careful, because really we have to make clear what it is that we're measuring and what it is we are aspiring towards. Because if it's just feeling good in a moment, then you might get misled if we're looking at longer term things like contentment and fulfillment. Um, but as he shares, this is uh, newer areas of research, but quite fascinating. And I do actually appreciate that he ends the book saying that he you know, thinks that there's two attitudes that are important or that he has when it um, comes to the field of psychology. One is humility, that 
we know some things, but there's so much that we don't know and no one has the answers to. And something to also keep in mind when you hear people say that they know certain things about psychology, often they're overstating what they know. So that's the, the attitude of humility, but he also has an attitude of optimism that that there will be, he thinks there will be progress and we'll continue on better understandings that will help us understand ourselves better and how to live better lives. And I agree with, with both of those attitudes. The humility is important and also to be optimistic and to have that hope that we can continue to persevere to learn from our mistakes and also our triumphs and to continue going forward. So again, a really fascinating book, just a great overview. And he writes really, I think it makes it quite easy to read. Uh, Paul Bloom is the author. The book is Psych, the Story of the Human Mind. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the first segment, I was discussing the book Psych by Paul Bloom. I mentioned that he has a whole chapter, um, a brief note on a crisis, talking about the crisis that psychological research is facing. And he shares several aspects of that, some of them I mentioned in the previous segment. For example, that many key and famous studies in psychology, especially social psychology, have not been able to be replicated or did not um, find the same results when people tried to replicate the studies. And that makes us question or consider what was really found or was anything found in those original studies. Um, on top of that, there are people who have been caught, and it happens in other fields as well, but either producing face, fake results, altering data, and doing a variety of things to um, create results that are significant, statistically significant, and might get published. And recently, a report happened just in the past few days uh, of a psychologist from Harvard, Francesca Gino, and I read one of her books, Rebel Talent, a few years ago, but recently um, she has been accused of using fraudulent data in at least four papers, and there might be others, and really the story is breaking, and it's still unclear exactly what has happened, but some other professors felt that some of her data included fraudulent um, some of her studies included fraudulent data, and they wrote a report. And so it's still, you know, being uh, coming to light what's happened. Now, what is in some ways ironic is that she had done some research on honesty. And so, um, of course, there's some irony there that some of the research being done on honesty included dishonesty or fraudulent data. And, of course, it's very disheartening to see studies, uh, incidents like this, because when we're trying to promote knowledge, scientific advancement, scientific understanding of a variety of things, we of course need to trust, when you talk about trusting the science, but really what we often need is trusting the scientists and trusting the scientific community, that what they're telling us is uh, genuine, at least at the level of them sharing what they found. And when we look at science, for example, if scientists tell me or tell us about changes in the temperature, I can't go measure them myself or have any way of measuring them. We have to trust the scientists. So, of course, we hope they are giving us the accurate information. And so when things like this come out, of course, it's going to lead to people being less trusting of the science and the scientists, unfortunately. And it's easy to 
point the blame at just this one individual. And it's definitely not uh, my uh, desire here to take away her personal responsibility in whatever has happened here. That's definitely on her to uh, make the decisions that she made and didn't make to get to this point. What I think is also important is to look at this overall system uh, and structure of research, of academia in general. I'm not in it myself, but knowing of it, I do see issues that uh, many people have commented on related to why these things might happen. Uh, for example, one thing that's very important is that we see that for an individual even to become a professor at a prestigious university, there is this thing of publish or perish, meaning that if you need, you need to publish in these academic journals, if you don't, you perish. You will no longer be a professor or even have a chance to be a professor to begin with. And so there is this pressure to keep creating studies that will be published, that will make it into these journals. And one thing that many have noted is if you find a study that doesn't have results, or I should say doesn't find the, um, the finding you were looking for, predict the hypothesis you were looking for, find a difference, let's say, between two groups, we considered this not important where actually it's still telling us something. If you find, let's say, that your treatment didn't work, although that's not good news for the treatment and promoting that treatment, it is still information and knowledge that would be good to know. But unfortunately, these types of studies, they don't get published and they get put in the filing cabinet. It's not even it's called the filing cabinet problem or issue that there's so much research that has been done but doesn't get seen because it's not flashy or doesn't get the type of attention we're looking for. So unfortunately, if we're trying to understand things better, we need to have all the information we are actually getting a biased or just a skewed view of all the information because we see the things that um, meet the standards of being published and the ones that don't, we don't hear about. So it seems like they never happen. So 10 different people can look at something. And if nine of them didn't find something and the 10th one did, it would be important to know that nine different studies didn't find that effect. But we tend to only see the one that found it. And that might be the one that's, that gets to, to see the light of day. Um, I also think an issue here that I find is this tendency we have, especially in individualistic cultures, to give all the praise, attention, fame, money to one person or the way we attribute um, some kind of progress is given to one person. So you want to be the person who publishes this data, not only that, uh, to be the first author on the study because then you will get more attention and and that can advance your career. I saw some things about this this professor was getting fees, speaking fees close to six digits each time she would speak. So we can see that there is a lot to be gained by becoming um, a professor or an academic who reaches a certain standard. Actually in the book, Paul Bloom quotes another professor who was found to be doing fraudulent or uh, using fraudulent data, uh, Diederich Staple. And he basically shares how he was tired of just being one of the crowd, that he would be speaking at conferences, but he'd be in the small to medium rooms off to one side, medium rooms to one side, not really the star. But after a while, he started to uh, 
mess with the data and create some interesting findings. And then he became one of the stars. He says, I wanted to be one of the stars. So this itself is problematic and something I think that the academic community has to look at, the ways that we do certain things and people get a certain standard uh, or a certain standing and how much the differences are there can really affect, well, it could be worth cheating because look what you get. And often when I've read reports of people who have done some of these things related to fraudulent data, they often felt that there was something there and they didn't really think it was so wrong. And of course, we're very good at justifying doing whatever we want to do. But they found a way to uh, kind of justify, well, I'll move some of the data. and Maybe this uh, person who is an outlier doesn't really matter so much. So we'll take them out of the data or add a few here or do things to make it more likely we get the statistical findings that we're looking for. And so they didn't even really think they were doing something so bad. But again, I think the pressure to publish and to create these findings that um, will get the attention of other people makes people go down a bad path. So um, that's something definitely worth looking at. Uh, another thing I'll conclude on related to this, and it's in the same topic, because I've definitely shared a lot of studies related to the field of priming or that, that um, concept of priming in psychology and social psychology. And so priming essentially is that when we are exposed to certain things in the environment, whether it's words that might make us think of certain things or let's say a temperature in a room or a temperature of the drink you're holding, that this is going to affect what you do. And often this research, and I've shared some of it myself, and I think at times probably over-presented how strong the effects were. Sometimes they make it seem like, for example, if you're holding a warm drink when you meet someone, you'll think more favorably of them. You'll think of them as a warmer person. Whereas if you're holding a cold drink, you'll think they're a colder person. What seems to happen is that there is something there, but it's very subtle. And it might not even translate to much of a real-world effect. But when it's presented in research and then cited by journalists talking about the research or by the researchers themselves, it can make it seem like it makes all the difference. That if someone holds a warm drink when they're meeting you, they're going to like you. And if they're holding a cold drink, they're going to not like you. And that's the only thing that matters. And so the field of social psychology, and specifically the research looking at priming, at times will present human beings as almost like robots that we are being just completely swayed by these outside forces and there's nothing else going on. That if you're in a cold room, you'll feel lonely. And if you're in a warm room, you won't feel lonely. You know, as I was saying, if you're holding a warm drink, you'll like the person you meet a cold drink, you won't. Or if you're holding a resume and it's on a clipboard, you'll think the person is competent. And if it's just in your hand, you won't think they're competent. And so again, in a lot of these cases, there might be something going on, but unfortunately the ways it can be presented or the ways the conclusions can make it seem is that it's everything. And actually, I think sometimes I've actually cited some of this research and made it seem that way in previous books related to these topics. And so in the book, uh, Paul Bloom does discuss this, that there is this tendency to overstate some of these effects, and really they might not be so uh, significant. So I, again, as I mentioned, this book does a great job of talking about the good of psychology and research, but also looking at some things you have to be 
concerned about, and it's unfortunate, and the timing of seeing this report of a, a very reputable researcher, or who had a, a good reputation for her research, uh, that there might have been fraudulent data in many of her papers, is disheartening. It's a real thing. We can't avoid it, and we have to face that truth. But I think it does make us reconsider some of the ways we approach aspects of academia and aspects of how we assign credit to individuals. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. To conclude the show, I wanted to talk about um, well, I guess it's not just one tragedy, but some tragedies that happened in the past few days, and uh, some posts I made myself that some thoughts about what happened with the Titan uh, submersible that a few days ago was going to see the wreckage of the Titanic, and sadly, it appears that all five members on board have died. And, um, of course... A story like this gets a lot of media attention and then social media attention and people are sharing their opinions and I myself posted something that I wanted to expand or expound on a bit more because I think as can often be the case when we post just one image or repost something, um, there's a lot that's left unsaid compared to what we actually do get to say. Uh, the post that I saw that captured my attention and I reshared was that also in this last week there was a boat with several hundred migrants who that capsized and I don't know exact number of deaths and casualties but many people were on board and so um, there was people making the connection that here we have hundreds of individuals who are risk of their lives and their lives could be potentially saved, but they get very little media attention, but very little response as far as resources. And then there were uh, five individuals here and there were many resources and media attention uh, pointed to that. And the easy comparison was to make that those five individuals were very wealthy, whereas these migrants were not. And so I posted that, and even as I posted it, I did have the thought of writing a prompt to be more comprehensive, but I did not. I just shared it and then talked to my brother and um, others related to that. It made me think about this issue a little more deeply, so I wanted to conclude tonight talking about some thoughts on that. So to begin with, when you post something, or when I posted that, and I know there was some sentiment that some people had of like, not caring about those five lives, that those five individuals didn't matter and we didn't help them. And that definitely is not my thought at all. Uh, my thought is actually more that we should definitely try to save those five lives. We definitely should be trying to save those lives of those others, the migrants and many others, of course. That was just one tragedy that also caught some level of media attention, but there's many that we don't even see, of people who are suffering and dying every single day, that we actually can do something about, but we don't. And so I did see many people, of course, there's always people joking and making light of any situation, even when it involves life and death. It's something that I think um, social media has made even worse, where 
everything feels very anonymous and people just seem like objects for our discussion, our enjoyment, our consumption, and our, our comments and hot takes. But there was a lot of people making negative comments about those individuals from disparaging them, also doing some of the things that we often do, which is some kind of a hindsight, uh, you know, quarterback, Monday morning quarterback, where, of course, how could they do this? It's obvious this was going to happen, where it clearly is not going to be that obvious. Uh, everything can be easy to say after the fact. Uh, but it was really, I think, disheartening to see people putting down these individuals or making it that their lives were not significant when they absolutely are every life is significant. I think the point that was important for me was to show that when we see at the same time or roughly the same time and in the same type of context at sea, uh, so much is invested in saving these lives, why are we not also investing in helping these other people who are suffering, these other people who could use that help and their lives would be saved? And so it's very sad. And I think the main connection also is tragedy, that lives are being lost and what can we do about them. So when we look at those individuals who were in that submersible and they, I don't remember if they paid something like a quarter of a million dollars. So I think one of the the uh, concepts that comes to mind is toxic envy, that people were seeing these individuals and we, yes, we use humor and even shaming by punching up to individuals who are doing better in some way, whether they're politicians or the wealthy. I think there's something that does make sense there. But I think it definitely can go too far when we're looking at people's lives being lost and that they can be uh, disposable. That I think is very, very disheartening. So I think there was something there that when we see individuals that we dislike or can be easy for us to dislike, we think it could be okay to wish bad upon them or that their lives somehow don't matter. And that's not the case at all. Um, the unfortunate thing is, as I mentioned earlier, What's happening, and we see these hundreds of people on the boat and their their lives are being lost and even divorce some images. But most of the time, the suffering that's happening in the world, we don't see in any way. We don't um, have to pay attention to it and we tend not to. And so it's easy for me to say, oh, why aren't we helping these people? But I have to also recognize that um, every day I'm not talking about all the millions of people who are suffering in a variety of ways and we don't do anything about that these injustices are happening all over the world every single day even I don't have to look um, thousands of miles away in whatever city I'm in there's likely some suffering that is avoidable if we do something about it and that we can do something about it but we find ways to ignore it to justify that if people are suffering somehow either it's their fault or one of my, when I say favorite, I mean least favorite, but that it's used a lot as well. The world is just unfair. Um, and I always think that's just an easy cop-out way of saying we don't want to do something about a situation. So it's nice to say, well, the world is unfair. What are you going to do? Even if you do something about this, you know, there's still going to be suffering going on in the world. And so, yes, the world is unfair and unfortunately probably always will be in some ways. But I think that brings up one of our responsibilities as each individual and as each society in every time period to try to reduce the injustices and to reduce the suffering that is 
avoidable, not just um, take it as is to say, well, people are suffering. It's just like imagine um, researchers doing medical research and saying, oh, well, there's illnesses, people are going to die. They know that if they do medical research, they're not going to eliminate all illnesses or even all cases of an illness they are studying, but they're doing all that they can to even help save one life and save many lives or reduce the suffering of individuals. This goes back to some of our black and white type of thinking and also our tendency to not like to sit with an uncomfortable feeling. And so if we can't get rid of some problem completely, we'd rather come up with ways to explain away the problem as even being a problem. Maybe it's okay. Maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Maybe the people suffering caused the suffering or brought the suffering upon themselves in some way. And we try to get out of that uncomfortable feeling by making the problem disappear in our mind rather than have the problem disappear or at least the problem become smaller in the real world. What I sometimes try to remember myself um, and to remind others is that when we are in a comfortable situation, we might think like this, but the moment you yourself are suffering or your loved one is suffering, even in a minor way, you quickly see the value of reducing suffering. So if you're very, very cold or very, very warm or you see someone you love sick, you might have the sense of, I just wish there was something I could do to remove that suffering. And you would in no way think that if someone removed that suffering or reduced that suffering, it would be meaningless. It would in some ways be the most meaningful thing there is. I actually think it's one of the uh, main meanings we have in life is helping others to reduce their suffering. It's one of the more clear ways we can help ourselves and feel better selfishly. But as selfish things go, it's a pretty good one. Actually, in the book, um, Paul Bloom did discuss how volunteering, there's been a lot of research finding that it does help people feel better. The results are always going to be a bit fuzzy about looking at correlation versus causation, but he shared some studies that do seem to support that we do feel better when we help others or we act in altruistic ways. So um, it does help us feel better. That's great. And of course, helps the people that are suffering or whatever way that they're, we're helping them, makes them feel better in that way. So I think that's very important. So as I was saying, sadly, there is um, millions of people suffering, and I'm looking forward to reading a book soon that looks at some cost-effective in the sense that, yes, every life does matter, but at the end of the day, uh, the world has to decide to help and do certain things. So uh, economics, unfortunately, always has to be part of it when we're trying to make positive changes. But looks at ways that we can spend not so much money in the grand scheme of things when we look at what the world has at its disposal as far as resources to, to help millions of people and save uh, millions of lives. And I'm looking forward to, to reading that book. But I say this to remind myself that to not forget these things because that is our tendency, to not think of the, the suffering that is happening all around us. And at some level, in order to function, we can't be constantly thinking of it and ruminating on it. I understand that as well, and I'm not trying to promote that. But that we don't want to ignore it either, um, to ignore the pains and the people that are suffering. And when we find ourselves looking at these situations, I do think the comparisons can be valuable. And that's why I posted it to say, look, we're putting all this money, resources, attention on saving these five lives, but not these hundreds that are also happening in the ocean around the same time. It was just to point out how 
this is a pretty big injustice we do see in the world where though some lives are definitely made to seem to be much more valuable than others. And I think that's unfortunate. And so that juxtaposition can remind us of a blatant injustice that is going on. But it's in no way uh, a means to say some lives are less important or we shouldn't care about certain lives or it's okay to make fun of people dying or something happening to them or disparaging them uh, when something is going on. So I didn't mean to undermine those lives were being lost. If anything, it was just to bring more attention to those other lives that were being lost at the same time. So a tragedy all around, as I said, that's the, the most common through line through this uh, situation of what was going on there. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Hazala, who is in the studio. I'm actually not in the studio tonight, so thank you to her for making the show run smoothly. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Thank you.